Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a major acquisition in the news. For those of you who don't regularly follow uh, the digital media and the the blog-like media, the Gizmodo Media Group, uh, which features a lot of the websites that uh, many of you may frequent if you like video games or you like sports or you like a number of other areas of life in general, uh, has been purchased, uh, has been sold, really, by Univision. Uh, and let's take a look at that story because this is my bailiwick. This is exactly what I do uh, on a regular basis, not necessarily uh, of these national or multinational-sized deals, uh, but I certainly deal with mergers and acquisitions and venture capital uh, in my day job. Uh, and so I have a lot to say about these kinds of things because I do think a lot of people are uh, rightly concerned about private equity purchasing companies that they know and they love, uh, but also maybe have some misconceptions about exactly what private equity means, uh, especially what private equity means versus some other terms that uh, you may or may not be familiar with, like venture capital, like mergers and acquisitions in general. Uh, And hopefully I can illuminate a little bit about those differences and maybe assuage some fears or maybe raise some, uh, depending on uh, how this conversation goes and, and what we wind up talking about in respect of this transaction. So let's take a look. This is an article from the Neiman Lab, which, as I understand it, is essentially a uh, service provided by Harvard. Uh, and uh, it says Gizmodo Media Group is sold to a private equity firm and Univision is out of the English language website business. The plan is targeting marketers who are seeking brand safe content and high quality audiences that are difficult to find elsewhere. It seems depressingly predestined, or at least depressingly 2019. One of the web's original publishing upstarts, a controversial but highly influential company that brought bloggy energy to digital media, valued not long ago at a quarter billion dollars, is now in the hands of a private equity firm that bought it for spare change in its very nice couch cushions. The price was not disclosed, though Peter Kafka Uh, in a Twitter, which is linked to this article, here's that it was less than $50 million, which if you're familiar with the private equity landscape uh, or some of these other articles that you may see about these giant buyouts and mergers and acquisitions and Disney buying Star Wars or the Fox Disney merger and things of that nature is just an infinitesimally small amount of money for the groups that we're talking about. $50 million is a lot for an individual Uh, But for a private equity fund, which is a a group of individuals or uh, other rich folks or institutions that put money into investing companies, uh, it's just very, very little. Uh, And I don't know, this is from a firm called Great Hill Partners, the size of their overall market portfolio or their their assets under management or the money that they have available to invest in things. But even for them, $50 million would be a very low number. 
take that as the speculation that it is. This is essentially a tweet uh, from a gentleman that follows the media uh, and seems to have some good sources, uh, but it is just a tweet. It's just a rumor. Uh, so if it is less than $50 million, that's an enormously uh, small amount of money, especially as we look in this paragraph of what has been purchased, uh, and it discusses how much money was spent by Univision in acquiring these assets. The deal encompasses a lot of properties with a variety of histories. There are the sites that were originally part of Gawker Media, Gizmodo, Jezebel, Deadspin, Lifehacker, Jalopnik, Kotaku, and io9. Univision purchased those for $135 million, except for Gawker.com, which was shut down in the wake of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit scandal in 2016. And Univision had separately acquired a controlling stake in The Onion earlier that year. There's also The Root, which Univision acquired in 2015, and two sites that Univision had launched on its own, Splinter and Earther. Per Variety, a Univision rep said that all employees of GMG and The Onion will be joining GO Media, which is the name of the new entity after it's been purchased by Great Hill Partners, and it's unclear if there will be layoffs. And then the parenthetical is, usually there are layoffs. Private equity firms don't exactly have the greatest track record for keeping media organizations alive and well. Spanfeller, the incoming chief executive of GO, comes from digital publisher Ziff Davis, which purchased Mashable in a 2017 fire sale. The company promptly laid off 50 people after being outbid by Univision for the Gizmodo Media Group. So this is the early stages of this article. This goes on to talk about how this uh, transaction has been received on Twitter, on social media, some other editorial comments about whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, what Univision's original plan was. You can see here they spent $135 million on just the Gawker assets. They spent some amount of money more on the Onion and on the Root and on these other assets. And if they did wind up selling them for under $50 million, uh, this is what you would call a disastrous investment. Uh, they essentially evaporated $100 million of equity, of capital in the course of a couple of years. Uh, and certainly when you are a business like Univision or any other business and you go forward and try to branch out, try to expand your business profile, try to do new things with the assets that you've accumulated doing whatever your current business is, you can make mistakes. Uh, that's one of the things I try to impress upon people when we talk about them in virtual legality or when we talk about them uh, on the Help Us Out Hoag segments on Easy Allies or elsewhere, that companies do have a lot of research. They have a lot of experts. They have a lot of people with a lot of experience. But it doesn't change the fact that they're human beings. Uh, and Univision thought there was a good idea here. Uh, and human beings make mistakes. Uh, and Univision clearly made a mistake here. And one of the things that happens when you talk about private equity is you talk about what it is that they're investing in and why they're investing in it. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But one of the categories that they can invest in is essentially distressed or mismanaged properties. Uh, private equity comes in and says, hey, uh, you've got a lot of assets. You've got a lot of writers under contract. You've got a lot of uh, goodwill, which is essentially an umbrella term that just defines the fact that, hey, you can recognize Kotaku if somebody says, I, I was reading Kotaku the other day, or you know what Lifehacker is, or Jezebel, or Deadspin, and that has some value. You already have people that are aware of your brand. You have that brand recognition. You already have people that are aware of how to get to your domain, maybe have you in bookmarks, maybe are subscribed to your newsletter, uh, and that has value in and of itself. And private equity can say, hey, that value isn't being utilized to its proper ends. I think in the platonic ideal of the way private equity firms or any other investment institution really works, the notion of buying something, uh, buying a company that isn't realizing the full value of its assets is to say, hey, we can do this better. 
there is a better way to reach more people, to make more money, absolutely, but to just do whatever it is that you're doing as a business better and more efficiently. And if you are a kind of defender of these investment policies, and I certainly have in my book of business a lot of uh, capital and a lot of investors that put money into companies like this, generally on the venture capital side of things, uh, then you can say, hey, this is a necessary part of the market process and we're getting money and we're getting resources and we're getting assets allocated to more efficient uses. Unfortunately, part of those efficient uses are very often a look through the way the organization is being operated, that it's being run, the people that are working there and saying, well, maybe there are some redundancies. Maybe this is not the way this should be organized. Maybe this is not what people should be writing about uh, per our market analysis, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And as you see in the parenthetical to this article, the usually there are layoffs is an accurate statement there. Uh, generally speaking, you don't change management and have the new management say, Everything that you have been doing is exactly what we wanted, and we just bought the company uh, for some kind of premium over what it's earning right now uh, because we just want to continue to ride the ship along where it was already going. Generally speaking, management comes in to say, hey, we've got experience doing X, Y, and Z, and we can see there are some inefficiencies, and so that means necessarily that some things need changing, and very often that does result in layoffs, which is one of the reasons that this article, this transaction was really brought to my attention on my Twitter. Please do follow at Hogue Law because I have these conversations on a regular basis. And if you have anything that you want to see a virtual legality episode on about, uh, it's a good place to reach me to tell me about something that you're interested in and that others might be interested in uh, because I'm regularly getting the topics uh, for these videos and for this podcast uh, from those connections. But yesterday I was uh, contacted, or more precisely, I saw a tweet uh, from somebody that I follow pretty regularly, Mike Futter, who is a uh, writer uh, at Variety and on Game Daily Biz and some other places. And he said, anytime I see a private equity firm sink their teeth into a company, I worry until there is reason not to. The Gizmodo sale gives me every reason to worry. And so I jokingly tweeted back, well, my M&A practice is going to try not to take offense to this tweet, Mike. And he says specifically what they think they are going to, to do to turn Gizmodo Group into. And I said, I'm mostly just joking with you. Even my book of business has dealt with, let's call them ill-advised acquisitions. Univision certainly had no luck. It will be interesting to see what the PE plan is, private equity, though I don't see them rolling in just to strip digital assets for parts, which is the generalized kind of concern when you talk about private equity, you're talking about marauders, people that have seen a ship that is flailing at sea and essentially takes that opportunity to board it, seize its assets, and potentially scuttle it, depending on what kind of private equity firm you're talking about. And that's one of the things that I think Mike is trying to illuminate here is that obviously if you watch business on any kind of regular basis, and especially if you follow in a particular industry closely like video games or like uh, digital media, then you have this whole history of seeing some firms come in and improve things and essentially get them out the door stronger than when they bought them. But a lot of firms that come in and ruin things and really make things more difficult for the company. And one of those areas, which I think is pretty prominent in people's minds, I want to highlight in an article uh, that I was reading a couple months ago, but I think is pretty useful to kind of understanding where people are currently coming out on private equity and certainly what is most obvious from a kind of public perspective, is in respect of the Toys R Us bankruptcy. So I've got here an article from uh, The Atlantic uh, from 2018 that says, The demise of Toys R Us is a warning. 
The private equity companies swooping in to buy floundering retailers may ultimately be hastening their demise. Now, we're going to talk about a few of the specifics here. This is a great article. It's a very interesting article that really talks about a lot of the factual backing uh, of uh, venture capital investment in Toys R Us, how it affected Toys R Us's ability to make money, and more specifically, how it prevented Toys R Us from being agile when the entire business model at retail is rapidly changing. We're in a current state of rapid evolution with Amazon and Target and Walmart and all of these various different ways that these massive, massive global retailers are trying to uh, better get into the minds uh, and the recognition of people on a regular basis. And whether that's digital delivery, whether that's experiential shopping, things of that nature, this continues to evolve. And Toys R Us was hamstrung by the fact that they were bought by private equity firms. So let's take a look at what this article says. Again, there's a lot of good background here. I recommend it. As always, I will link the article in the description to this video. Uh, but it says less attention was paid, less attention than the fact that all Amazon and Walmart and Target were causing competition problems for Toys R Us. Less attention was paid to the albatross that Bain, KKR, and Vornado, those are all private equity funds, had placed around the company's neck. Toys R Us had a debt load of $1.86 billion before it was bought out. Now, I think we're all familiar on a personal level with what debt is. You know, you've got a credit card and you buy things with it and then you owe that money back over a long period of time. I don't think anybody individually can fathom really having $1.86 billion in debt. Uh, but when you're operating a, a retail enterprise, you've got a lot of money going in and out and a lot of cash poor positions that you're creating because you need to have things like inventory all bought before a season happens and then you get the cash and then you have to pay down those debts and things like that. That's one of the reasons why you need so, so much capital to run a brick and mortar retailer, uh, really in, in kind of any business, but certainly in kind of the modern multinational concepting of it. So they were carrying $1.86 billion in debt. And I don't know them uh, and what they looked like before they were bought out in terms of what their balance sheet was. Certainly, it's not an ideal position because you're going to be spending so much money on interest. Uh, but they had that money. And then it says immediately after the deal, so this is after private equity comes in and buys them out, it shouldered more than $5 billion in debt. Now, how does that happen? What does that mean? Where does an extra $3 billion in debt comes from? And that's really what private equity does when we're talking about the term leveraged buyout. If you see the word leveraged, you should think in your head that means debt. We're talking about uh, debt involved somewhere in the transaction. It's not the same in every transaction, which is one of the reasons I think a lot of the, the press sometimes elides some of the more specific details in a way that isn't terribly illuminating, depending on what kind of transaction you're talking about. But if you see the word leveraged, we're talking about debt. And one of the things that private equity can do is they can come in and they can say, all right, we want to put a certain amount of money into buying the equity of the company. And equity, again, are those things that we consider shares or stock. They represent a percentage of ownership in the company so that if a company has 100 shares outstanding, if you buy one share, you own 1% of the company. Uh, and when Bain and KKR and Vornado come in and they want to buy it out completely, they want to take it private, they essentially have to figure out a way to pay everybody that currently owns shares in the company money to get them those shares back. And one of the things they do to do that, because nobody carries this much money to take a giant public corporation private or to do any of these other major, major transactions, is they look for banks or other institutions to lend them money to buy out the stock that they want to purchase. But one of the things they do when they borrow that money is they essentially apply that money 
to the assets of the company that they're purchasing. They are allowed to get loaned that much money, not because they personally have those assets, but because they are acquiring an asset that will be able to backstop the loan. So when they say Toys R Us was immediately saddled with this extra $3 billion in debt, that must be what had happened. And I don't pretend to have all the details on the original Toys R Us buyout because it's not really pertinent to the discussion we're having today about Gizmodo. But the way private equity works, the way other kind of mature uh, acquisition private investment entities work is if they're is a need for that much money, they can borrow it and use the assets of the company as collateral. And that's the way it often happens when you're talking about this many dollars. This article goes on to say, by 2007, according to Bloomberg, interest expense consumed 97% of the company's operating profit. Yeah, if you're shouldering $5 billion in debt, you are gonna have a lot of money that goes to paying down just the interest on that debt, let alone the principal. And if you can't grow the company, if you can't get whatever you were doing before the buyout to a higher level, you're going to have major problems. And this is one of the major criticisms that people levy at private equity is they're allowed to get these loans, collateralize the assets of the company that they're purchasing, and then really all that they have at risk because of the way corporations and LLCs and other entities work in America and in most other common law countries is that you're only potentially liable for the amount of money that you initially put in. So if that debt bought that and the debt is saddled, as they say, with the company, then for the most part, all that Bain and KKR and Vornado are really risking is the initial down payment of the money that they put in. And very often private equity is investing at a 10% level or a 20% level of the overall purchase price uh, at the company uh, at the company side. So they have that at risk, uh, but they are not risking this this higher amount of money, the banks essentially just have the collateral and the assets, which is ultimately what drove Toys R Us to bankruptcy, is they couldn't get over this hump. They couldn't expand. They couldn't have the agility necessary to compete with who they needed to. Uh, and ultimately, the, the banks called the note, as they say. They didn't get the money that they were supposed to get on the payments. The company goes bankrupt, and everybody gets pennies on the dollars. A bunch of people are fired. Toys R Us goes under, and the goodwill is sold uh, to interested buyers to to revive the brand under a completely new entity at some point in the future. And yes, we will see Toys R Us at some point in the future because it's still a valuable name. It's still a name people recognize. And when there is that value, somebody is going to realize it because there's no reason not to. So yes, expect Toys R Us or Babies R Us or some combination of both to appear at some point in the future, but in a specifically different entity designed to use those assets uh, and not in the way that you would have come to recognize them during Toys R Us's heyday. But that's really how private equity works. That's how it gets such a bad rep. You see here is, I think, the final paragraph that we're going to talk about in this article. A private equity takeover is akin to a family's buying a house. A firm contributes what is essentially a down payment using its own funds and then finances the rest with debt. But in the case of a buyout, the firm doesn't have to pay back the mortgage. Instead, the company it bought assumes the debt. Now, that's a very particular kind of private equity investment and generally a kind of private equity investment that is these super high levels of funds. Because again, no one entity is really going to carry that much money. You saw even in the description of the Toys R Us buyout, you're already talking about three giant private equity firms working together and then funding it with bank money or with other institutional investment money as a loan on top of that. So you've got all these people invested in the project uh, and not any one institution, one entity, one private equity firm is potentially liable for the whole thing. 
but you can see that it creates these kinds of potentially negative incentives. On top of that, private equity gets certain tax benefits that we're going to talk about in a second, which is why they are structured in the way they are structured to get management fees, to get a carried interest in whatever the overall revenue of the company uh, winds up being because you get capital gains treatment on those in a very specific way. And we're not going to go into the details on the taxes. It's just worthwhile to note that the structure of private equity firms, of venture capital firms, of fund of funds and other things that we could talk about are a creature of tax law. And that's worthwhile to look at as well. That's something that could be an entirely different video or certainly a video where an accountant comes in and we talk to them about it because tax law does drive so much of the structure of everything that you see. One of the reasons I started Virtual Legality is I wanted to help educate or at least kind of illuminate for folks why they are seeing some of the stories that they are seeing, why what they are seeing in articles about major transactions in business, in law, uh, at the media level, at video games, at information technology, wherever else you might see these giant transactions or that you might be interested in, whether they're in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, where have you, why they're happening the way they're happening. Because I find that enormously fascinating. That's really one of the things that gets me up in the morning. I love to think about how do those contracts work when you're talking about a license arrangement in which Thanos appears in Fortnite, or how does a transaction like Fox and Disney happen? Why does Gizmodo get purchased this way? One of the reasons I think is that Univision gave up. They tried something new. Whenever you try something outside your business profile, you all, you always run that risk. And though $50 million off of what may be $200 million in investment sounds like a big loss, uh, there is that kind of sunk cost fallacy. If you are looking into the future and you're Univision and you see this asset wasting all the way down to zero, that you're just continually losing money and somebody's willing to pay you $50 million for it, you don't you don't think as a business, oh, I, we spent $200 million on it. We can't take a $150 million write-off. We can't take that loss. You say, okay, if in the future it's worth $25 million or if it's worth zero, $50 million is a good idea today. And yeah, somebody probably gets fired over the initial decision to make the investments in these assets uh, in, uh, in the past, but they don't get fired over the decision making right now, which is to say, okay, if we think we're going to lose more money on this, you get out when you get out. Uh, that's one of the real uh, gifts that a lot of good entrepreneurs, a lot of good business managers, a lot of good chief executive officers or operating officers has is knowing when to get out. It sounds weird, but you have to know when you failed, when something isn't a success and stop throwing good money after bad. Stop investing in something that isn't working for you. And that's one of the things as a narrative that you can see in those articles in The New York Times, in The Washington Post, in The Wall Street Journal is the story of companies deciding that whatever initiative they were doing was a bad idea or deciding to expand into a new area. And we're going to take a look at the Great Hills Partners uh, About Us page to see exactly why there might be some concern over this particular acquisition. One of those reasons is that they have no media experience, at least none that is evident uh, on their website. They are not in the business of doing media. And one of the things that private equity really can bring to the table as a benefit is management that knows the industry that they're entering into or that knows technical aspects of the companies that they're investing in or the geographies that they're investing in or the industries that they're investing in. And you don't necessarily see that with this particular partner. So when looking at the Toys R Us story, when looking at the tweets from Mike Futter, when looking at the description of the Gizmodo Media Group's uh, sale uh, in the article that we read to start out this video, you can see why there is generally some consternation about what's happening here because so often private equity has rolled in has stripped a company for parts or otherwise saddled it with an overabundance of debt, not allowed it to grow or change or engage with its audience in a way that is going to allow it to, to flourish. And there is this concern that Great Hill has come in and done that.
Now, I will tell you, based on the Peter Kafka tweet that we were reading about in the previous article, $50 million is not a deal where you're going to necessarily have to deal with this high amount of leveraging. Uh, unless Great Hill Partners, and again, I don't know their overall market strategy or size, unless they had absolutely no money when they engaged in this, they rip, they probably didn't need to leverage this particular investment a whole heck of a lot. They might have done it anyway if they had the access to the, the capital, uh, but $50 million is not the same kind of thing as $3 billion. I know that sounds uh, ridiculous on its face to even say, but it's worthwhile to note because when you're talking about a $50 million investment, you aren't talking about a leveraged buyout necessarily. You aren't talking about something where it is unlikely that the Gizmodo Group couldn't handle $50 million of debt if it all, every dollar, went on their balance sheet. And I don't know that that's going to be the case at the end of the day. So we're talking about something different. But we aren't talking about something philosophically different. And one thing I wanted to talk about just in general, we've already talked about this a little bit, is what private equity firms are, how they work. And I wanted to essentially take a look at the Investopedia, which is a nice site for highly technical and maybe not altogether useful definitions of things that relate to financing of companies. I like this site as a expert in the area to kind of just remind how things work when you're dealing with particularly very specific alternative investment vehicles, pipes, and things like that that we don't need to go into on this video. But I will say this particular site I have found in my experience is a lot like WebMD. I have had clients come to me and ask me about potential financing models that they read about here or in other sites that are similar to this one where they say, I've heard about this thing and I think this could be a good alternative for us. And there are six ways why that won't apply to their company or their investment or 10 ways why it'll make things worse. Uh, and so I would always caution people to, if you're reading these kinds of things, I think education is always a great idea. It's always a useful idea. Uh, but this is one of those kinds of areas where when you get into the technical stuff, it can be dangerous. So absolutely, if you're thinking about doing an investment like this, if you're an accredited investor and you're thinking about joining a private equity fund, get some counsel. It doesn't have to be Hoglaw, absolutely. Although I'm happy to take the, chat, the call and chat with you for 10 minutes about whether it's a good idea. Uh, it doesn't have to be me. Uh, it doesn't have to be anybody in particular except a lawyer that you're comfortable with. But you really do need someone when you're talking about $50,000 investments or bigger uh, or, or joining one of these firms. Or if you're running a company that is looking to have an investor that is one of these firms and is asking for, th for certain things in respect of their equity rights or leveraging uh, against your company, then get counsel, have, an, have a discussion with your accountants because these are the kinds of things where you really can get burned. You really can lose your company. You can lose your investment. You can lose your nest egg. Uh, and I don't want that to happen to any of you. So absolutely talk to counsel, talk to accountants, talk to experts in this area. But let's talk about what this website in particular says private equity is. Private equity is an alternative investment class and consists of capital that is not listed on a public exchange. So good so far. Alternative investment is a particular term of art that essentially means not standard. It's not something that you buy in the New York Stock Exchange. It's not an ordinary way that people invest their money. It's not a mutual fund. It's not something like that. Private equity is composed of funds and investors that directly invest in private companies or that engage in buyouts of public companies, resulting in the delisting of public equity. That's what we saw in Toys R Us. In this case, they directly invested in a private company, Gizmodo, although investment isn't the right term because they wound up buying the whole thing. They acquired the company. The difference between investment and acquisition is investment, you own a part of the company when all is said and done. and acquisition, you own the whole thing. Institutional and retail investors provide the capital for private equity, and the capital can be utilized to fund new technology, make acquisitions, expand working capital, and to bolster and solidify a balance sheet. 
The difference here, institutional, is those entities that we talked about, uh, like uh, pension funds, uh, like uh, organizations that are specifically devoted to collecting money. Those mutual funds might be invested in alternative investment classes, depending on what kind of fund you're talking about. And retail investors are, are generally people. Uh, they're, they're folks that are generally well off. We're going to talk about why that is in just a second. Uh, but it's folks that wanted to put money into someplace other than the traditional stock market. And so they look for alternative investment classes and they put that money in private equity. Uh, the next phrase here that I wanted to highlight is called understanding private equity. It says private equity investment comes primarily from institutional investors, which we just talked about, and accredited investors uh, who can dedicate substantial sums of money for extended time periods. Accredited investors is a class of uh, items that are specifically uh, identified in the securities rules uh, to allow folks of a specific wealth status generally to invest their money uh, in these alternative investment entities. Uh, so to break that down a little bit, the securities laws in the United States, and we're not speaking really internationally here, uh, primarily because one, I'm barred in the United States, uh, but also because uh, these laws and these rules can change even state by state, but also most definitely in different countries. Uh, the accredited uh, provisos in the United States securities laws basically say uh, a company can raise private money. It can sell its equity to private investors uh, under certain rules uh, without making a public filing, without making public disclosures. Uh, but the easiest of those rules is to only sell their securities, which is their stock primarily, to investors that meet these certain standards that they are accredited. And the reason these exist, the, the reasons that the securities laws exist in this particular fashion is on the premise that uh, folks that have enough money, that, that either make enough income or have enough net wealth, can afford to, uh, to lose this money. Essentially that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, doesn't need to worry about protecting these people from themselves as much. Uh, and it also stands as a proxy for sophistication. Generally speaking, the Securities and Exchange Commission exists to make sure that people aren't getting bilked out of their money, that people aren't fraudsters when they're selling securities. And so they do this primarily through a method of transparency. They require disclosures of companies that are selling securities stock into the public market. With respect to private offerings, they don't have those same protections if you are wealthy enough, if you have a million dollars in your bank account and that is not inclusive of your house, or that you make two hundred dollars or $300,000 a year, depending on whether you're married and a bunch of other factors. And this is one of those areas where I personally, I've dealt with this a lot. I handle a lot of what are called Rule 506 offerings, which are these private offerings generally to accredited investors. Uh, and uh, one of the areas where when I first started this job, I said, well, that's one of those pieces of law that clearly has a, has a good meaning. It has a good intent. But it is one of those areas where you can see the complaints about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and that kind of differentiation under the law is absolutely justified. It's one of those areas where you can understand exactly why the SEC made these rules, exactly why accreditation standards exist. But you can also see, hey, there's a lot of money being made in venture capital. There's a lot of money being made in private equity. There's a lot of money being made in these private offerings outside of a public market. And in general, it's foreclosed to people that don't have a million dollars already in their bank account or that don't make $200,000 a year. Uh, and regardless of how you feel about that necessarily, I've always found it to be interesting because it does separate these people into different classes. And it's one of the things when I'm doing an offering for one of my clients, it's one of those areas where we have to actually set up a set of representations and warranties for the pr prospective investors that says, 
you have to acknowledge that you're accredited. You have to say you follow these accreditation standards and that you're not going to sell this in a different market. All these other different rules that allow us to sell this stock to you under one of the safe harbor provisions, Rule 506, uh, and not have to deal with the disclosure obligations under the Securities Act or the Exchange Act. And that's what private equity does. It's one of the other areas where the law really controls why these things look the way they do. Um, This article goes on to talk about some advantages of private equity. It is favored by companies because it allows them access to liquidity as an alternative to conventional financial mechanisms, such as high interest bank loans or listing on public markets. It also lists some disadvantages, which we've mostly discussed already, such as leveraging companies and, and saddling them with overabundance of debt. But it's worthwhile to highlight the advantages, which is Overall, in a perfect world, having more money available to more companies is a good thing. It allows more companies to succeed. It allows more resources to be efficiently allocated. Uh, And that's going to make more sense for some companies than making sure that they comply with hundreds and thousands of hours of disclosure requirements that are necessary to go on to a public exchange and maybe or maybe not find a market there. Uh, If there are a, a much smaller pool of people that believe in them, Uh, They can get the liquidity they need to get to market to have revenue growth without having to deal uh, with the public market infrastructure. And that overall is a good thing, uh, all other things being equal. Uh, This article goes on to talk about a little bit of the history of private equity. You see here I highlighted a sentence which I particularly like. It says, when it took place in 1988, conglomerate RJR Nabisco's purchase by Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, that's KKR, for $25.1 billion was the biggest transaction in private equity history. The reason I highlighted this is there was an absolutely... Uh, wonderful, very old school, uh, very kind of 90s, I think it was an HBO movie called Barbarians at the Gate, in which this uh, leveraged buyout transaction and the way an auction process works uh, on a leveraged buyout, the fiduciary duties of the board of directors, things of that nature, were all kind of fought about in a, in a movie called Barbarians at the Gate. And I, I highly recommend it if at Anyone uh, who's watching this or listening to this is interested in these kinds of things. It is very highly dramatized. Uh, you know, it has Maverick uh, as uh, one of the folks that is at RJR during these these talks, and it has uh, a bid that, that succeeds and a bid that fails, and you really kind of see all the tension and all the pressure that comes uh, in dealing with these private equity firms, and you see some of the potential sleaziness or sliminess that can also uh, result from those. I believe it was based on the book uh, of the same name, Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, but I highly recommend it. It's, I think, very 90s, uh, and uh, you should uh, you should take it with a grain of salt, as these drama- uh, dramatized things are. Uh, but it is fun, uh, and it is an interesting movie, and, and so I do recommend it. And I certainly saw this sentence, and that immediately sprang to mind. Uh, the last thing on this article that I wanted to kind of highlight is just another kind of uh, way of describing what we've already been talking about with how private equity works, and that is this category called distressed funding. Uh, which they say also known as vulture financing, more specifically in instances where a company is going bankrupt imminently. So this isn't really necessarily a vulture transaction. Money in this type of funding is invested in troubled companies with underperforming business units or assets. Again, as we said at the start of this video, at the start of this podcast, the platonic notion of a private equity firm is, hey, we've got these smart people. We can tell when your balance sheet or your assets aren't efficiently allocated. It doesn't make sense. You could use an expert manager or a new CEO or an, or a reorganization on this level or that, and we can make the assets that you have in this bucket better off. We can make it bigger. We can make it grow. Uh, and that's the ideal of somebody coming in and, and taking over the company and buying it for $50 million and ideally, they're not doing that to lose $50 million. They're doing that because they think it can be $200 million again. 
in a limited window of time. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But that's the last thing I wanted to talk about in this article. Investopedia, uh, if you're interested in private equity, if you're interested in venture capital, I, I guess one other thing I should flag is uh, I talked about it at the top of this video and podcast, but my primary book of business when talking about private equity financing is in respect to venture capital. And venture capital is a private equity investment. It's a type of private equity, but it's focused on growth. It's focused on essentially highly risky investments in companies that are either very young in terms of commercialization or are even pre-commercialization, that there are scientists that have a really good idea uh, and everybody thinks there's a market for this thing and everybody thinks that it could work, or you've got a giant barrier or hurdle to real money uh, in terms of market capabilities, such as an FDA approval or something along those lines. But they're going to need $25 million to even get to that FDA approval, and that would be really low and a, and a small stage of the, an approval of that type. Uh, but if they don't get that money, it's going to go away entirely. And if they do get approved and it all works out well, it, you're talking about $5 billion. So venture capital gets very high rates of return uh, and invests and gets large chunks of really young companies uh, on the notion that it's highly risky, that a lot of venture capital investments are not going to succeed, uh, but that the ones that do are going to pay for the ones that don't. Uh, and so I, uh, in uh, working in and around the Ann Arbor area where the University of Michigan is located uh, as my career, have worked a lot with uh, young portfolio companies uh, that are technologically based uh, and venture capital funds that put money in those companies. And so that's my bailiwick. That's what I do on a regular basis. Uh, and that's the kind of private equity that I work with. The other kinds here they talk about are fund of funds, which are essentially uh, private equity funds that fund other private equity funds uh, to essentially diversify their portfolio, real estate, which we saw a big resurgence of after 2008, and then leveraged buyouts, which are those kinds of things that we talked about with respect to the Toys R Us purchase. Now let's take a look at Great Hill Partners. This is the company that bought Gizmodo and their About Us page just to kind of tie this all up in a bow to talk about who purchased Gizmodo, why there might be concerns, and what it means for private equity, what they're looking to do, uh, especially when we talk about exit. So this is the About Us page for Great Hill Partners. And it says, at Great Hill Partners, it is our mission to be the most trusted private equity partner by embodying our core values of integrity, teamwork, accountability, attitude, meritocracy, and a desire to win. That is very much a private equity type mission statement. Very very business school uh, terminology motivated, uh, but it doesn't really say much of anything. We provide private equity to finance the expansion, recapitalization, or acquisition of mid-market growth companies. So mid-market uh, means smaller, uh, and growth companies means you're looking for companies that you feel when you're analyzing their balance sheets, their financial statements, have a high capacity to change their model or to otherwise improve over a short period of time and really increase that revenue uh, in that short period of time. And you saw that in the quotes that we read at the start of this video and podcast that they saw in Gizmodo a growth opportunity. You see here their investment criteria, partnership. We don't work from a one-size-fits-all formula. We take a unique approach with each opportunity because each of our portfolio companies has unique needs. We take the idea of partnership seriously and define our success by the success of our portfolio companies. You run your company, we're here to help you achieve your goals. So when we're looking at this About Us page, this is a marketing page. This is essentially an outward projection of this particular company's uh, mission statement in order to show portfolio companies and other 
people that might in, get involved with them that they are uh, worthwhile to be involved with themselves. When you're running a company or your counsel is counseling you on a, on a potential investment by a private equity company of any kind, one of the things that scares founders, one of the things that scares the company uh, initially is whether or not this is going to be a good partner to work with. And so this is them trying to say, hey, we understand you're worried about the suits from New York or elsewhere coming in and taking over your company and changing everything. And we're a partner to you and we don't do that. Now, the honest truth is they sometimes do that. Sometimes they're going to have a CEO that they love or management that they really like and they think they just need a little bit more expertise and a little bit more capital and then they're on their way to the races. Uh, but sometimes they're going to have to come in and make big changes. So while I think this is a good mission statement, it's aspirational. Uh, and anytime you've got an institutional investor that you didn't otherwise work with and they come into your company, changes often need to be made. Growth is another aspect of their investment criteria. They say GHP, which is the initials they use for their private equity fund, is growth-oriented and committed to building businesses over the long term. In fact, most of our deals have been executed without debt to maximize your flexibility to make tangible investments. Again, we just talked about that, but a $50 million purchase price does suggest that it probably isn't overly leveraged, which is a good thing for the long-term success of the company. It doesn't need to change necessarily to work. Although the fact that Univision lost $100 million on its investment in three years does suggest that those financial statements probably don't look very good right this second. Sustaining high organic growth rates is a science, and we have the experience and expertise to support your company as you scale. Finally, they say expertise. We have deep knowledge about the sectors and businesses in which we invest. That's why CEOs trust us to develop creative growth strategies for their companies. One of our CEOs said, although I had met dozens of investment firms, Great Hill was the most knowledgeable investor in the industry that I had encountered. Again, in a perfect world, and I have clients that would swear by their investors, including institutional investors like private equity companies, in a perfect world, the private equity company that invests in you or that takes an ownership position of your company understands what's going on in your industry and is this kind of partner that they are at least describing here. These are the right things to say, regardless of how they operate. And I don't know them from Adam, so I can't tell you how this company in particular operates. But you want somebody there that has been through these wars, that has dealt with these issues, that has talked through some of these concepts. And this is what they're claiming that they do. Um, you saw that they're putting in place a CEO that worked with uh, Ziff Davis. So they do have some experience in terms of at least placing people that have a relationship to things like the digital media industry. But at least from their portfolio company and from the articles that I've read on this, they don't appear to have a great basis in media in general. So this expertise is probably a little bit more specific to in general running companies rather than media specifically. Uh, and so I do think you can gain expertise, you can gain value, you can gain efficiency just from folks that have run businesses and have done this kind of thing in the past. Uh, because oftentimes, uh, if you have the wrong management, you're just going in a direction that isn't terribly fruitful. And somebody can come in with new eyes and say, oh, okay, this direction should be followed instead. But there is a, a word of caution with respect to these particular folks, because we don't see that kind of background uh, in media investment. Finally, we see them describe their size of investment, 40 to $250 million, target company size of 25 to 500 million, investment stage, everything beyond early stage. They're everything but a venture capital investment firm. Early stage investment is that venture capital, the high risk. Most of these companies are going to fail investment. They're okay with public or private companies. They like to do acquisitions as well as growth equity, taking companies private, recaps, uh, consolidations, minority positions, and pipes, which is essentially private investment and public equity, uh, meaning uh, companies that are on a stock exchange can sell private, uh, private stock at the same time. 
They like to own between 10 and 85%, but usually over a third. They have to have a position on the board. And here's really the last thing I wanted to flag, which is an, a topic we haven't discussed about how private equity funds work. Typical holding period, three to seven years. A private equity fund is not designed to be involved with your company forever. They have limited partners. They have other investors that have given them money to invest in these alternative investments like private companies, like Gizmodo Group. And those investors have to get money back. They have to be getting money on a consistent basis from exits from their investment. And so typical holding period, ideally a private equity fund gets in there, makes a rapid amount of changes that they think are going to grow the company. uh, And then they wait for a short period of time. And then with a little luck from their perspective, they sell the company to a strategic buyer or someone else that's interested for a significant uh, profit. And then they go on to the next one with the capital that they've accrued in their fund. So it does mean you have a different relationship with an institutional investor, with a private equity fund as at the company level than you do with other investors that are essentially there for the long haul. Uh, And a lot of people get scared about that. It does potentially raise concerns about short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. Uh, But at least in the initial term and on the broad strokes of the thing, the private equity firm is incentivized to maximize the value of the assets, to maximize the value of the company. And when you're talking about an acquisition that probably isn't leveraged, they don't have another kind of cross-purpose to to make sure that they can uh, meet the interest payments to get their own money out and then uh, essentially worry about the debt load later. If there isn't that debt already sitting on the books of the company from their investment, they can be a little bit more generally oriented towards maximizing the value of the company. But it is important to note that that is the philosophy of really every private equity fund, whether it's a venture capital fund or another type of fund, is that they have this holding period and then they're going to liquidate their interest after that period of time because they have their own investors to answer to. And so that has been a short overview of private equity and what has happened uh, to the Gizmodo Group in the the past couple of days. They're going to be under new ownership uh, after disastrous ownership from Univision, which isn't to say that Univision went in with bad intentions or to blow up $100 million of value. They almost certainly did not. It was just the case that whatever advantages and whatever profits they thought that they could get out of the assets of the Gizmodo Group and the Onion and some of the other assets that we heard described weren't there. And they realized that they weren't the ones to realize that value out of those assets. And I think we've heard of Univision putting these assets up for sale for at least a a period of time now. So it's no surprise that this happened, uh, just that it happened now specifically and at the values that we're kind of seeing described. And there's going to be changes. I don't know that they're going to be significant layoffs. I don't know that they're going to be significant reorganizations, but I would be surprised if at least some of the entities weren't reevaluated and had their resources reallocated and changed uh, because you don't come in, you don't buy a new entity, you don't buy uh, a new group of digital media assets without some plans for a change in management, for a change in organization. So I do think that there is a legitimate concern Uh, for uh, at least some of the jobs and at least some of the entities that are part of the group that they won't exist in exactly the same way after the reorganization has happened. But certainly as an optimist at heart, I would like to think that uh, whatever changes are made, whatever uh, reorganizations happen, they are with the goal of uh, more efficiently allocating what this investment group has determined to be strong and important assets that do have that growth potential. 
Do they have a good plan? I don't know. I don't know this company, and I don't know what the future holds for Gizmodo or for anyone else. Uh, but I'd like to think that they are going to make good steps and that they're going to continue to uh, grow some brands that uh, I'm a regular reader of and that I have uh, enjoyed over the years. So we will see uh, what happens. Uh, but while I think there is reason for concern and certainly reason to watch it closely, there is not reason for gnashing of teeth just yet. Uh, and certainly, as Mike Futter said in his uh, tweet, uh, he uh, looks uh, circumspectly, he, he looks with caution at pri private equity purchases until he has reason not to. Uh, and I think that's probably a fairly good philosophy to have. Uh, maybe you don't love it from just the offing, uh, but maybe they can prove that uh, they're, not, uh, they're not idiots when it comes to making this purchase and maybe everything will be okay. We will certainly see in the future, and if something significant happens on that score, uh, especially with Kotaku, uh, which, I read, which I read regularly in respect to the gaming industry, uh, there will certainly be a virtual legality about it if specific changes are made, if there are significant changes uh, that wind up happening to the Gizmodo group. So we'll be following it. That was today's virtual legality. If you like this video, please do like, please subscribe, please share it around, retweet the tweets that I make about sharing this video to uh, everybody that you know. I certainly get a lot of engagement from those shares and in places that I don't regularly get to, like Reddit, like NeoGAF, like Reset Era. Uh, I very much enjoy that engagement. So if you find that somebody else might like it or that you think uh, another place uh, on the internet would enjoy this kind of content, please do let them know. Uh, and please do let me know in the comments to this video uh, or to the podcast in reviews uh, what you like and what you don't like. I love disagreement just as much as I like agreement. I'm a lawyer by trade. So if you want to disagree with me, as long as it's uh, rational and there are very few ad hominems or name calling, uh, I would be more than happy to engage with that because I do get so much out of that. I do find that to be so valuable. So other than that, have a great day. Uh, thank you so much for watching on YouTube or for listening if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast service. And I will catch you on the next virtual legality.